This is Mishmash, a weekly conversation where we unjumble an important and sometimes under the radar statewide issue that affects you. I'm Jake Neer. And I'm Shana Roth. Oral arguments in front of the U.S. Supreme Court in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization seem to have confirmed what many legal experts had assumed up until this point, that the Supreme Court's newly cemented conservative majority are moving in the direction of either overturning or eroding Roe v. Wade to the point where some say it would be like it isn't even there. In case you didn't already know, that's the 1973 landmark decision that cemented the right to abortion access in America. Now, we don't have a ruling yet in this case, but Shana's esteemed colleague at Slate, legal correspondent Dahlia Lithwick, writes that, quote, oral arguments made clear that this court will overturn Roe. And that would have a huge impact here in Michigan, as well as many other states, in terms of access to abortion services. Lithwick joined WDET Stephen Henderson on Detroit Today and said that going back to a pre-Roe world will have a disparate impact in states where abortion will either be illegal or very restricted. I think what you're going to really see is a reversion to a country in which, you know, wealthy women, Justice Ginsburg would always say, will always be able to get an abortion. (laughs) Uh, But the women who most desperately need them, women of color, poor people who can't travel, uh, immigrants who can't necessarily um, freely cross state lines, they're going to lose all access. Now, to clarify here, because this is where I got tripped up a bit, whether the court overturns Roe or whether it erodes it or narrows it down, everything is going to depend on what the court writes in its opinion. But many are saying that it will likely say that it's up to the states to decide which kind of effectively overturns Roe. And here in Michigan, if the Supreme Court does in fact overturn Roe, we would suddenly have one of the most restrictive anti-abortion laws in the country back in full effect. A law from 1931 criminalizes abortion as manslaughter. It says that providers who carry out abortions are guilty of a felony except when it's necessary to save the life of a mother. Governor Gretchen Whitmer is calling on the state legislature to repeal that law. Democratic State Senator Erica Geis already has a bill to do just that. But of course, the legislature is controlled by Republicans who have already said that's not going to happen on their watch. State Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky has in the past compared abortion to slavery. He told the Detroit News recently that, quote, the primary charge of any government or government official is to protect the life of the innocent. Michigan Senate Republicans will not waver from this fundamental duty to protect the sanctity of life. To which a lot of people have said of that slavery comparison, that's a really bad comparison and misses the mark. And Michigan is not the only state that would outlaw abortion if Roe were to be overturned. According to Pew Charitable Trusts, 12 states have trigger laws that ban all or nearly all abortions if Roe is gone, and 14 states have bans still on the books that predate Roe or have been enacted but not used since Roe. Some even have both. But at the end of the day, it is all going to come down to the exact wording the court uses. And if we've learned anything from past opinions by this court, it's going to be anything but clear. Jake, you mentioned that my fabulous Slate colleague, Dahlia Lithwick, Seriously, folks, she's amazing, was on Detroit Today with Stephen Henderson this week to talk about these oral arguments and what they signal for the future of this case and for reproductive rights in America. 
Yes, Dahlia is a regular on the show when we need someone to help us understand the Supreme Court or other national legal stories. You can also check out her amazing podcast, Amicus, on Slate. I highly recommend it. Uh, But we thought that we would bring you that full conversation on WDET this week to give you more insight into what the justices said and asked about this case. So without further ado, here's Stephen Henderson's conversation on Detroit Today with Slate legal correspondent Dahlia Lithwick. So give us a quick overview of what we heard yesterday and why you think oral arguments have really confirmed the notion that this court is ready to overturn Roe v. Wade. Well, I think going into arguments, it was clear that the court kind of had two paths. One, you know, this is a 15-week ban in Mississippi. There are similar bans around the country. Uh, Those bans are always unerringly struck down, even by conservative courts, because the rule after Roe v. Wade, and that was reaffirmed in Casey in 1992, is that pre-viability bans, if it's an all-out ban, it is unconstitutional, and viability is currently set at about 24 weeks pregnancy. So a 15-week ban, that's not close. The way a lot of folks thought this would go is that the court wouldn't necessarily put the sort of legitimacy of Casey and Roe on the line, they would just move that viability line. Mm -hmm. They would say, oh, science has changed and, you know, we've got better science and we can detect fetal pain. You know, there's a lot of ways to frame it, but that that uh, 15-week marker is okay. And that's, I think, the position that Chief Justice John Roberts, and we've talked about this before, he's the incrementalist, he's the institutionalist, that's what he was trying to kind of muster some enthusiasm for at argument yesterday. Um, I I don't think I'm alone when I say he had zero takers in that enterprise (laughs) to do a kind of narrow fiddling with the viability line. I think it was fairly clear that the other five conservatives on the court were really there to have a conversation about overturning Roe and Casey. Mm. So I, I want to talk a little more about those arguments and, and what that will mean. But I also want to stop for a second and talk about the fact that we heard from Justice Tom, Clarence Thomas uh, yesterday, which is not something that always happens in the court. It's something of a rarity. What What did he say and what was the exchange that he had uh, with the lawyers? Well, you know, Thomas has been famously silent mm-hmm. in all his years on the court, and that actually changed in COVID. When the court went to telephonic oral arguments, mm-hmm. Justice Thomas started to talk, and he talks at every argument, and in fact, the justices, as a matter of courtesy, allow him to ask the first question. <laughs> so one of the really interesting things about post-COVID Clarence Thomas is that he's incredibly deeply engaged uh, <laughs> in oral arguments. Uh, the thing that he was, I think, most focused on uh, with the attorneys uh, who represented both the clinic in Mississippi uh, and the uh, federal government is that he really wanted to make a point of saying there's just no constitutional hook for the right to abortion. And he would sort of say, is this about privacy? Is this about autonomy? Like, where is this right located? Name the provision in the Constitution. Essentially, I think, calling into question all of what's called sort of substantive due process, all of 
the bucket of legal protections around privacy that go to LGBTQ rights and the right to use contraception. I think what he was trying to press on is that was just made up out of thin air. Show me where it is in the Constitution. And, and in many ways, that connects to lots of other arguments that we have about the scope and the limits of individual rights and, and, and privacy in this country. I, I thought that when I read his comments, it was it was a, a sort of broadening of, of the argument here to things that I, I think many other Americans might not even think are in question at the court. Yeah, I think for folks who are listening carefully the way you were, what was alarming is hearing the court simultaneously say, oh, Roe is bad precedent. You know, it's it's from 1973. It's not that old. Science has changed. Everybody hates it. It shouldn't be binding. But then assert that things like Griswold versus Connecticut, you know, the right to use contraception in your marriage or, you know, as you say, Lawrence versus Texas, which first protected same-sex uh, uh, relationships, and then Obergefell, which finally found a right for gay marriage. All of those things, the court, the, the conservative justices were saying, oh, no, we're not talking about those things. Those are real precedent. But, of course, these are the same justices who, at their confirmation hearings, each and every one of them said, no, Roe is binding precedent, Roe is good law, you know, Roe Roe is the law of the land. And so I think it raises this question of if you can willy-nilly decide that Roe is no longer binding precedent and you can overturn it, why aren't all those other cases that are rooted, as you say, in that right to privacy, family autonomy, dignity, you know, liberty, all of those kind of bucket of 14th Amendment rights, Hmm. they too must be on the table. And I think it raises this question of where does this end? Yeah. I'm talking with uh, Dahlia Lithwick. She writes about the courts and the law for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus. We're talking about oral arguments yesterday in a pretty important abortion case out of Mississippi. Uh, Dahlia says that this could be the end of the Roe v. Wade precedent that has stood since 1973 as a protection of women's abortion rights. Uh, Dahlia, I want to talk just a little about what would happen in practical terms if the court did uh, effectively overturn Roe. We would go back to a world where states had much more say over, uh, over abortion rights, but what would that look like in the different states uh, in the union? Well, I I think one place to start is just recognizing that in some sense, even without the court doing anything, we're already creeping into that realm, right? States like Mississippi, that is at issue here, only has one clinic left. There Mm -hmm. are several states that only have one clinic left. Um, You know, the average American women in some of those states has to drive hours and hours even to get to the one clinic. So sort of by hook and by crook, we're already getting there. But you're quite right. If the court were to say, as Brett Kavanaugh was positing, we're not going to say the Constitution bans abortion, we're not going to say it permits abortion, we're going to let the states decide, then that's exactly right. We revert to the, the pre-Roe world in which states like California and New York and increasingly you know, Virginia and other purple states will have more and more abortion uh, uh, access. And, you know, states, particularly states, I have to say, with the worst 
maternal and infant um, mortality rates mm-hmm. and, and uh, health rates are going to just have all their clinics shuttered. So I think maybe the best answer is what we have seen in Texas since SB8. That was the bill that went into effect uh, on the first day of September, where after six weeks, nobody can procure abortion. And that is still the law in Texas. That's what you're going to see around the country, where the very luckiest, wealthiest pregnant people will be able to go to Oklahoma and maybe get uh, an abortion out of state. But that huge numbers of people will either be attempting self-abortions, they will be going to Mexico and trying to procure uh, drugs, uh, or they'll be carrying to term against their will. And I think what you're going to really see is a reversion to a country in which, you know, wealthy women, Justice Ginsburg would always say, will always be able to get an abortion. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the women who most desperately need them, women of color, uh, poor people who can't travel, uh, immigrants who can't necessarily um, freely cross state lines, they're going to lose all access. And I think that's probably where, as I said, even absent this decision, some of the states are headed. I think we will hurdle to that. There are 22 states Mm. that will make it immediately impossible to get an abortion. Mm. And indeed here in Michigan, we even have one of the most restrictive anti-abortion laws on the books. And if Roe were to go away, that would uh, that would be the law here uh, as well. I, before we have to end, I want to ask you about the potential reaction to this. The, the court counts on public confidence to maintain its authority as an institution. Does that confidence get eroded if a precedent this big gets overturned. You know, that is without a doubt the sort of meta conversation around this case. Uh, When the court heard Casey in 1992 and reaffirmed Roe, the thing they decided, and this was an improbable three Republican appointees, Justice Kennedy, Souter, and O'Connor, decided to save Roe largely because they said we cannot just reverse precedent because of politics. We cannot say the composition of the court drives how we, you know, do law. And all of Casey was a long meditation on the legitimacy of the court. The court decided to save Roe. So I think all of those questions are resurfaced. We've now got the court polling lower than it has ever polled, you know, in the the 40s. Um, Then and, and I think that there's a great anxiety that the justices feel that public confidence has really eroded in the court. And so you're completely right. All three of Justices Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor yesterday raised the specter of how can we possibly say the court uh, is legitimate if the only reason we upheld abortion in 2020 in the June medical case and strike it down uh, in 2022 mm. uh, is because Amy Coney Barrett replaced uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We can't do that. Justice um, Sotomayor described it as the stench of uh, you know the, the court as a political institution. And I think those are the issues that the justices are going to be thinking about really hard is how far can they push public confidence that the court is a neutral, apolitical uh, institution in a moment where public confidence is already pretty dubious about that. Mm. 
That was Slate legal correspondent and host of the Amicus podcast, Dahlia Lithwick, talking with Stephen Henderson on WDET's Detroit Today. And if you want to hear more Detroit Today with Stephen Henderson, you can always listen on the Detroit Today podcast. It's available wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you get Mishmash, you can probably find Detroit Today as well. Uh, you can also listen live on weekdays from 9 to 10 a.m. or from 7 to 8 p.m. on WDET. If you're in the Detroit area, it's one. FM, or you can listen anywhere live by streaming at WDET.org. And that's all for Mishmash. I'm Shana Roth. And I'm Jake Neer. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.